I read a book uh, years ago that, uh, quite frankly, the content of it, I can't remember, which means it probably had no redeeming qualities, um, except one thing. And that is there was a statement, so I guess I kind of didn't tell the truth there in the first part. I do remember one redeeming quality of the book. A statement that was made in it that just kind of caught my attention. And the, and the statement um, that this author made was with reference to the church. And he said this. He says, the church is the hope of the world. The church is the hope of the world. Now, I had to stop at that statement because at first take, it almost seems heretical to think that the church, God's believers, are the hope of the world. Typically, we hear God being the hope of the world or Christ being the hope of the world, but the statement said the church is the hope of the world. Um, that strikes us, probably some of us, as somewhat off because many of us are acquainted with what the church is really like. That is, it's filled with imperfect people and led by imperfect leaders. There, are, there have been times when the church has shined like a, like a bride, and there are other times where the church in its history has earned for itself a not-so-beautiful reputation. So that would cause us to question the statement that the church is the hope of the world. But the more I, I think about the church's role in history, the more I realize that in a sense it's true. And that means that you, in some sense, are the hope of the world or the hope of this city. It is not true, that statement is not true in the sense that we are the source of hope. We are and never have been and never will be the source of hope for the world. Rather, what we are as God's people is we are witnesses to and a visible demonstration of the fact that there is true hope in Jesus Christ. He's the source. And, and our, our responsibility, our, our job, our task, our, our mission, our mandate is to testify that there is hope in him, hope for Forgiveness, hope for reconciliation, hope for peace, hope for joy, hope for a renewed love, hope for a renewed creation in which God and man are brought back together in perfection. That is found in Jesus, and the church testifies to that. And at some level, we're supposed to be a visible demonstration of that hope. People are to see in the church, though it be fallen and, and imperfect, some semblance of, of this is, this is a, a taste of what's to come. This is a taste of hope. And in that sense, we are, as a church, and the church, again, is not this place, it is this people, is to be a witness of and a, a visible demonstration of the fact that there's hope in Christ. And we've been placed in the city in this time, in this place, to be that ministry of hope. Which means that the health of this church family and, and how it relates to each other and how it responds to each other and, and learns to minister to each other and outside of ourselves uh, is highly significant to the future of the city and to the world, at least parkway to this city. Which brings us to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul, having finished three chapters on the amazing work that God has done, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, then turns his attention in chapter 4 to investing truth into the family, into the church, to teach them how to live and to live in a way that they grow together. You'll notice that any, any topic that deals with growth as 
a Christian, is inseparably tied to this idea of community or church, as if those two cannot be parsed apart. That our growth as individual Christians must take place within the confines of this thing we call the church or the community of believers or the people called the redeemed. And he's giving us instructions for how we are to relate to each other that as followers of Jesus, we are bound to submit to. He's laid out for us, by way of recap, the relational requirements necessary for a church body to grow and to be that hope. Um, that is, um, he tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to which he has called you with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love and so forth. Those are the requirements. Then after that, he laid for us a foundation of truths that are already real, a reality of our oneness that maybe we don't always feel it or see it, feel it or see it. But the fact of the matter is he, he gives us a list of seven ones. He says there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all, through all, and in all. That is, he was saying, this is who you already are by nature of what Christ has done. You're simply learning to live out who you already are as a family. That's the foundation, the unity that we have because of Christ. That's an already established reality. But then in verse 7, he makes a switch, and he introduces that powerful little reverse word we call but. And he's going to turn our attention from the unity and oneness of the body to the necessary diversity within the body. Let me read this for us. Verse 7, switching from the seven ones. He now says, but, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and women. That would be a generic. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And I'm going to slice it and stop right in the middle of that sentence where we'll pick up um, next week. The point of what he's saying here and making kind of a change is he's saying that there is the strategic diversity that God has invested into the church by way of unique gifting of every individual that comprises this thing called the church. That there is by way of this diversity of gifting in which God gives unique abilities of each and every believer to be a conduit of God's saving activity or saving grace, that there is this necessary interdependence that we have upon each other in order to grow. There is a necessary interdependence upon this vast diversity which God has strategically designed so that we all grow together. You get that? It's, um, it's like one single orchestra with violins and violas and cellos and, and basses and trumpets and trombones and percussion all playing together their unique parts to create this wonderful and beautiful sound called a symphony. That's the diversity he's created in the oneness to create something beautiful and to give the world a taste of hope of what God is like and what the new creation will be like. That's that's the diversity that he's created. 
Now, most of us are probably fairly familiar with the concept that each of us has our own unique God-given gift by which to serve in that diverse oneness. And it's, just, it's not all that hard to understand. It's much more difficult to apply. I mean, you can think of a thousand illustrations that show the power and strength of diversity and unity. I mean, athletics. I mean, there you have a whole litany of illustrations of how a team with different pieces working together works, with the exception of bowling. Bowling doesn't work. Everybody does the same thing in, in bowling. Or music, or musical groups, or military units, all doing different things to achieve an end. Nature itself is all interdependent. No tree exists apart from bacteria and air and sunshine. It's all interdependent and, 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 and exists in this kind of diverse uniformity. So it's, it's not so hard to get our heads around it. It's harder really to, to, to understand why it's so difficult at times for the church to embrace and experience this. So for that reason, let me just lay out briefly because for some this might be new, uh, five things that, that this text says about this diversity of gifting that's strategically been given by the Spirit, by Christ to his church. I'm going to make them brief because I want to spend the last part on talking about why is it that oftentimes the church seems to not experience this symphonic harmony. Briefly, one of the things that Paul teaches here is, is uh, in verse 7 is that grace gifts, that is that diverse, strategic, unique purpose of life for a believer, um, find their source in Christ. But grace was given, given by who? Your answer is it at the very end of the sentence. To each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So our uniqueness to in any way, shape, or form uh, be a, a, an instrument of grace in another person's life, of saving power and activity, um, comes from, finds its source in Jesus, which means we have absolutely no reason to brag or boast or be proud about it at all. It's a gift. And it comes from him. And I think implied within that also is the fact that the gift is only sustained and empowered as we are connected to the source. That's John 15. You know, I am the vine, you're the branches. Unless you abide in me, you can do nothing. So, the first order of business with any gifting is, are you connected to the source who is Jesus Christ? Is your relationship strong and vibrant? Because if it's not, then your gift is worthless. That's one of the things that he teaches us, is that the source is found in Christ. Christ, the one who gives these gifts to the church by way of his Holy Spirit. Second observation or principle he, he lays out here is the fact that grace gifts, the uniqueness the unique design that every believer is given to operate are given to every believer. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. That is, everyone. There's no one excluded. So no one can say, you know, kind of like on the playground when you were a, not a very good football player like me, and uh, you were excluded from the game because you weren't good enough. If you were a follower of Jesus, it doesn't make a difference what your education level is, what your background is, what your history, how much experience you have. The simple matter of fact is that you have been given at least one gift, a unique gift. 
by which you were meant to play a strategic part in God's unfolding work of salvation. Everyone here has one. Nothing is missing. And just by way of clarifying terms, I believe a, a, a gift of the Spirit or a gift that comes from Christ that's unique to the individual um, is any ability, talent, or strength. Ability, talent, or strength that God uses to honor his Son and benefit the church or advance his kingdom. Which means a gift could be something that God has been providentially working in your life up to the point of conversion, at which point he says, now I'm going to spiritually empower that. A teacher probably has a gift of teaching long before he ever converts to Christ. It's when he comes to Christ that God says, now I'm going to give that supernatural power. Or he may simply impart to you something you didn't have before at the moment that you came to faith. The point is, everyone in here has one. That means and implies that everyone in here is responsible for that one. At least one. And uh, he lists a couple of them here, which I'll get into in a moment. But that's, that's a second observation. Everyone has one. Third, the grace gifts vary in measure. That last part of the sentence, these unique strategic ways God has designed us and gifted us to honor himself and, and benefit others, um, vary in measure, which means some are going to be stronger and some are not going to be as strong, which is not... Um, in any way, shape, or form, supposed to communicate um, greater importance or lesser importance. In fact, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 22, that oftentimes it's the weaker parts, the parts that you don't see on Sunday morning, the parts that are happening in private that are given greater honor. So it's not an establishment of value. It's just to simply say Jesus gives different measures of different gifts to different people. And for one, I, I find that personally somewhat liberating. I have three... There's probably more, but three off the top of my head, um, what I would consider to be my hero preachers. Martin Lloyd-Jones, John Piper, and Tim Keller. There's some old dead guys, but you've never heard of them. So those, those three guys, uh, actually Martin Lloyd-Jones is dead. Um, those three, you can still hear them on the radio, though. Those three, and you know, I came to the realiza realization years ago that I will never be them. But realizing that it's that way by design. And what that does is to recognize that God gives different people different measures of gifts as a sovereign gift, allows us to be who we are, and simply do our best to be who he created us to be. And minimizes the temptation to compare, be jealous, but rather be grateful. The grace gifts, they vary in measure by design. That's the way Jesus in his wisdom has distributed it. Some are going to have stronger, some are going to have lesser. Fourth, grace gifts vary in function, obviously. They vary, um, they vary in function. Here he says in verse 11, he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. And, and he could go on to probably list, if you were to ask him to give an entire exhaustive list of every kind of gift, I don't think, I think Paul would say it's impossible. It's like trying to categorize snowflakes. 
the uniqueness of personality blended with gifting and so forth is unique almost to every individual, but there are people who are giving gifts of discernment and wisdom, people who organize really well, people who, who, who feel and people who think and people who speak and people who empathize with people and people who love to just care, people who love to give um, above and beyond what other people do. And, and all of these are unique facets of how God created us in this new creation life to be and and gifted to play this unique part in his eternal story. That's that's a diversity of function. I mean, the apostles, they were Jesus's um, authoritative spokesmen, his messengers. They carried the weight of, of the word of Christ the prophets, at least from Paul's vantage point in chapter 2 and 3, were those who revealed the mysteries of Christ. Uh, the evangelists were the church planters and the, and the missionaries and the shepherd teachers were the ones who took an already established group of believers and began shepherding and teaching them. Those were all different functions. Each played a different part. And everyone in here who is a follower of Christ is to play a different part, a different function, with a different measure of gifting given to every believer whose source is found in Christ. And fifth, and, f- and finally, of getting us on the same page, um, grace gifts communicate the presence of Christ. Grace gifts communicate the presence of Christ. Uh, you'll notice in your translations, if you have them, or you see it on the screen behind you, that verse 9 is in parentheses. That is, it's, it's, it's written almost kind of like as a digression, like Paul had a, a rabbit trail moment where he saw a squirrel and just decided to go somewhere else. Because it says, in saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, um, that he might fill all things. Now, the question is, for anybody who's like a sensitive reader going through, it's like, what does that have to do with oneness or diversity of the body of Christ? What does that section in the parentheses have to do with the subject matter that he's talking about? Which is why it's in parentheses. I would like to venture an interpretation that doesn't come from me, but I find um, I am inclined to take that makes sense with this and actually teaches us a rather profound truth about the nature of our gifts. Let me just comment on this verse in the parentheses. He's just quoted in verse 8, he just quoted a psalm talking about him ascending on high and leading captives free and giving gifts to men. And then there's this like, oh, I got to talk about his ascension and dissension. Like he, he, he ascends, he, he descends, and he ascends again. Like what does all this have to do with? Well, let me just say for, for, for sake of time that when it talks about his descent to the lower regions of the earth, it's talking about Jesus coming from heaven to earth and into the grave. That is his descension. That's the first advent, the holy descent of the Son of God to come and take our place and to die and be placed in the grave. That is his descent. Then he goes on afterwards to talk about his ascent, which is basically it would include his resurrection, his resurrection life, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. That's, that's Christmas at the middle. But notice he talks about the dissension and ascension and then adds this purpose statement that he might fill all things. So you have descent, ascent, so that he could fill everything. Those first two have to do with the very heart of the gospel. Death, resurrection, descent, 
and ascension. It's the heart of, of our faith, what Jesus did in coming down and paying for our sin and rising again. But then this last statement, that he may fill all things, what does that mean? And I'm inclined to believe that what it means is that, and John, the Gospel of John, I think would confirm this, is that he had to ascend in order to send somebody else to earth, namely his spirit, to fill his people and to gift and empower them to take the gospel of the liberating kingdom to the ends of the earth and thereby fill all things. In other words, he's talking about dissension, ascension to the giving of the Spirit so people could be empowered and gifted to take the gospel of the kingdom to the uttermost parts of the earth. Which means, as we, this is the part that's cool, as we find our place in God's plan, as, as, as we know this is what he called me to and he's gifted me to carry out this calling, that as we follow that calling, using our giftedness and our own uniqueness, we are actually manifesting, we are filling, we are showing people the presence of Jesus. I used to think of the, you know, the gifts as a, um, like a wrench or a hammer or a, you know, like Bob's a hammer, he can hit things really well or, you know, Jim's a, a a ratchet, and he can crank things really well, or Dave's a shovel, and he can dig things really well. It's not completely utilitarian. Rather than to recognize that Christ embodies our giftedness, and his presence is communicated to us and to each other as we allow his grace to flow through those things. It's him filling these things. That brings a whole different level of understanding to why we're supposed to be doing what God has created us and made us and gifted us to do to communicate the presence of Christ. Now, there you have just kind of a, some observations about this idea that God has created and he has um, strategically designed the one family with all of these diverse parts to uniquely communicate Christ, to communicate grace, to communicate God's saving power to each other like an orchestra so why is it that it seems at times like the church is playing an orchestral piece way out of tune when it's you know it's like not a nice chord sound but there's like whoa let me attempt to answer that by way of application one answer, of course, is there will always be sin in the church. So there will always be a little discord and a lot of dissonant, dissonant sounds. I'm going to continue the music metaphor. There's always going to be some amount of dissonance in the church. There always has been. There always will be. Somebody is going to be playing out of tune probably more than one. Second, the church will always be filled with a combination of people who really believe and people who do not believe. Which means the church is always going to have a facet of it that's spiritually alive and working and another piece of it that's spiritually dead. There will always be, I'd say walking dead, but that's the name of a show. There's always be walking dead in a church family. It's people who don't really know the Lord and therefore they have no changed heart. So that's another reason why you're going to see dissonance in the church. Why it's not always playing as a whole, as a visible whole, this amazing orchestra or crestal piece. Another reason that I don't think it seems at times like 
we're playing this amazing symphony, is that I think much of the spiritual gifting that God has equipped the body with is often unseen. That is what you see happening at this church building today, um, Quest on Tuesday, and High Life on Thursday, and other ministries that happen, that really is just the tip of the iceberg. And uh, I have been rebuked both in spirit and in word for having a judgmental attitude towards people when I don't see them serving, using their gift visibly on this little geographical location and thinking that they're not using their gift only to find out through back channels that they are taking widows to the doctors, they're hosting their own Bible study in their home, or they're leading a Bible study in Solano County Jail. And I find myself going, wow, God, you're doing stuff that I don't see. So you have to give the benefit of the doubt that, listen, if you're a Christian, then I'm hoping if you're not using them inside this geographical location, you're using them outside. But really, that's something that only you have the answer to. I can't answer, nor can I judge you for that, nor should we judge each other. You have to answer to the Lord yourself. If, are, am I, am I a, a fulfilling the call that you've given to me in my life using the gift you've given to me? I can't judge that. You can't judge that except in your own life. So that's set reason number two, that oftentimes those things are unseen. Reason number three, maybe I'm at four. Reason number four, sometimes it's a, a failure of self-discovery. I don't know if failure is the right word, but I would imagine that there are there are people in here who would say, I really don't know what my particular redemptive purpose is in life. Especially if you're in the younger generation. I haven't been a Christian all that long. You're still trying to figure out who you are. Or maybe you are someone who's been around a long time and you still don't know it. Let me offer you, I think, the most organic way of discovering your place in redemptive work. That is your place in the body and that diversity of, of playing an instrument. That is, you have to be connected to believers. You have to be serving in some capacity in or outside the church. And then you have to allow enough time to figure out exactly where your strengths and abilities are. I find it fascinating that when the Holy Spirit put this book together, he did not give us a spiritual inventory test. Check this and this and this and this. And, oh, this is who you are. Pop. Now, I'm not suggesting that those inventories are, are not helpful. But if they were necessary, they would have been given to us. The most natural way is for you to be plugged in with other people, connected. And that would be my first question to anybody who doesn't know. Are you connected to believers who know you? Two, are you like actively doing some kind of ministry wherever there happens to be a need? And then have you given enough time, connected with people and working, to figure that out? I mean, that's how we do it in our, our families. Uh, as a mom and a dad, um, you know, we're connected to our kids. We know our kids, and we expose them to athletics and music, and you quickly figure out, wow, you are not good at baseball, uh, not good at soccer, but, man, you're an amazing drummer. My, my daughter, if she was to say, Dad, I'm going to Cal Poly, and I am going to be an engineer, I'd say, absolutely not. That's not because I'd want to shut her down. It's because she's not designed that way. And it's our job as parents to help her discover who she is. And you do that in relationship. That's what we're supposed to do. 
I, it, I think it probably if I was to add up, it probably took me eight years to figure out that I'm actually supposed to be a pastor. And it was the last thing on my list I ever wanted to do. But it took that time, and that's okay. You know, it's just, again, it was just simply I was connected with people who were affirming and seeing things in me, and I just was doing a whole bunch of things, some things I was good at, some things I wasn't good at, and eventually the Lord said, this is, this is how I've gifted you to fulfill your call and to bring grace to your people. Number five, and this is the last one. I think it, at its core, if this orchestra is way out of tune, oftentimes it's simply because we have failed to love um, by giving ourselves away. I probably don't have to tell you, but maybe need uh, to tell you by way of reminder, we live in a highly narcissistic culture where um, w- we are formed to focus on ourselves more than others. That's the world in which we live. And the whole market of consumer goods rotates around that and reinforcing that simple truth that life is about you. And we live in it. And I know as Christians we can be naive to the fact, well, I'm a Christian, I'm not like that. Well, you know what? Um, It saturates ourselves more than we think. And it's because of that saturation and compromise, I think, that oftentimes we don't actually fulfill, at least not to the fullest extent, that purpose that God has for us. Christian love, as I understand it, is not about a primary obsessive focus on self. It's not. It's not that the self isn't important. But the, the, but, but, the, but the primary focus of the Christian's life that enables him to actually grow and desire to do his gifting is a focus first and foremost on Christ. He receives my gaze. I, it's not a matter of self-focus. It's a matter of Christ's focus. And then second to that is a focus on the needs of others as opposed to placing your needs before theirs. It's like we're in third place. The self is in third place. My focus is on Christ. And the good of his people more than it is for myself. That's, that's kind of the Christian, I think, priority of, of, of attention and focus. And as that focus gets realigned, well, then I think we naturally grow in ways that we probably aren't even aware of. I, I, I was thinking about, okay, so how did, how, did, um, how did Paul love these Ephesians? How did he love in the utilization of his communication gift and the preaching of the gospel to the, to the Gentiles? That was his call. He knew exactly what he was supposed to do. How did he do it? And I'm struck by the fact that he was willing to do it to the point that he was in shackles in prison and bleeding. And he keeps reminding them of this in, in chapter 3 where he is he's talking about his own ministry, his own call, his own gift. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ, chained to a wall um, for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. That's his mission, the Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. Same language, given to me. It's grace, given to me to do something. And I'm doing it first and foremost with a focus on Christ, and second of all, for the sake of you Gentiles. And I'm in prison because of it. 
And he reminds him again at, this end of the, at the end of this chapter on his own distinctive giftedness. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. He gladly expend himself in a stinky prison cell for the sake of their well-being. Now, that kind of a heart of love behind a gift is powerful because it's driven by self-giving love. And if there's one thing I think that maybe is missing more than anything that's causing this symphony to be out of tune, it's because we don't really love this way and need a genuine, deep-seated work of the Holy Spirit to come in and reorder our priorities so that we're not putting ourselves first. If you're too busy, make this be about me so I'm not being won't be criticized as judgmental. If I'm too busy that I can't sacrifice time and emotional energy, hardship created by the fact that ministry is opposed by evil forces, if I'm not willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gift because I'm too busy, then life is about me, not others, and not about Jesus. That's simply truth. I don't say that to make us feel guilty. I say that to unmask what I think is a deep-seated sin for which we had to just come before the Lord and say, Ah, Lord, teach me to love. Teach me to love like this and to utilize who you've created me to be for the glory of your name and for the sake of your holy church, your bride. I, I hope the Lord is speaking to all of us in here. I know he is me. For each of us to examine our own hearts. Because really what this message is, is just a clarion call for everybody to operate using their unique design. To be faithful in it. To the point of willing to suffer in doing it. For the sake of making beautiful music that offers hope to our community. If you didn't know or don't know what your gift is, you know, maybe this is good news. You're like, I have a place. I want to discover it. If you've been sitting on it and you have not been faithful with it, I, I pray that God would draw you back to the center and reignite a, a love for his son and a love for his people. And for others who are just doing, using their gift week after week, and I know there are lots who are, just keep trucking. Just keep on going and using your gift because you know what? Someday your Savior and our King is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. God, grant us in this church a heart of true love that places self third, not first. A love for Christ, love for his people. And that we'd be willing to suffer, to give ourselves away in loving that way. I pray this in Jesus' name, who loved us that much. you to take a few moments to respond.